Stand with me. We will do the call to worship um, on our order of service here from Psalm 118. This is a messianic psalm talking about the gates of righteousness, the stone that the builders rejected. So I'll read the bold section if you guys will read the italicized section with me. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If you want to turn with me to song number four, your little hymnal there, we'll be singing Rock of Ages. Rock of ages, clap for me, let me hide myself in thee, let the water and the blood from thy wounded sides flow, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath. Yes, you die. 
come to the confession of sin. Um, I think this is one of the hardest parts of this service for us, if we're honest, that um, we realize that we sin and that we are not perfect before God, that we need help. And what did Jesus say in Luke 5? He said, it's not those that are well that need a doctor, but those that are sick. And that's who Jesus came to call. So, um, and so even as believers with new hearts, with new desires, we still fall into sin and we need to ask God for um, help. And so a confession of sin comes from 1 Timothy 1.15. It says this. This is Paul speaking. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So we'll do a, um, a corporate uh, confession of sin together. So this is not um, a Catholic confession of sin where we go to a high priest and we just say things to make ourselves feel better. Um, we're confessing to God through Christ, the great high priest. So let's do that together. If you'll read with me that, um, that paragraph. Almighty God, we come this morning confessing our sin to you, not because you do not know it, for you know all things, and nothing is hidden from your sight. But we confess, not only admitting we have fallen short before a holy God, but that we might turn from our sin and run to Christ for mercy. If we are proud, may you humble us to see our need for grace. And if we are in anguish, would you lift our eyes to see the grace of Christ. For your name's sake, be gracious unto us, and forgive us, we pray. Amen. Return with me to song number five. We'll sing Solid Rock. So 
come to the part where we are assured of our pardon that through Christ um, a way has been made. And so this comes from John 10, uh, the famous passage of Jesus speaking about being the shepherd of the sheep. And him speaking to the Pharisees, he says this, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. Mighty God, we come before you this morning on this day where we get to worship you, the triune God, and rest in Christ. And we come this morning looking to you, the great shepherd who gives the gift of eternal life, that even though our sin is great and has separated us from you, that you have made a way through Christ, the great shepherd, and that by faith we can be assured that our sins are forgiven, that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Would we rest in that this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, our confession of faith this morning is from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 21. So like I said last time, confessions of faith are just where we publicly proclaim truths about God and His Word, um, not only to instruct, but just to remember um, these great truths. So this morning we'll be answering the question, what is true faith? If you'll read along with me. True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in His Word is true. It is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the Gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, Amen. Okay, so if you guys will turn with me, if you have your Bibles or on your phone or whatever, to Acts chapter 3. We've been, we've been rolling through Acts. There's been a lot going on. We've covered resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, this outpouring of the Spirit. And we've tried to <coughs> look through the lens of... Uh, Acts, and maybe differently than we have before. Typically, it's looked at as a book that is just a list of events or maybe, um, you know, moral teaching, but we've tried to see it differently, that this is really the acts of the risen Lord Jesus, that upon his ascension, he sent his spirit, is building his church, and so these are not just stories about Peter and John, um, but they have big implications. And so last week, we talked about the early church, 3,000 added, and we talked about those three important parts of New Testament worship, um, theology or the word, liturgy, so prayer, Lord's Supper, baptism, and the community, and we talked about how those are all important to what it means to be a church. So this week we're slowing down a little bit, there's been a lot of <laughs> verses, a lot of theology, and so um, this is right after Pentecost, we're going to jump in. So things have kind of calmed down a little bit, and... Um, Peter and John, we're going to see, are going to the temple, and there's this one event that happens, and it can feel like just this one event, 
and some people treat it as something that needs to be repeated. But this one event will have big implications, not only for the next couple chapters in Acts, but really even for us. So this one act we'll see in the coming chapters has ends up leading to 5,000 people coming, coming to the church. So this providential, miraculous act is not something that we need to try to analyze and try to repeat, but it's really like we've been saying, an act of the risen Lord Jesus building his church. So I'm going to read it. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. I'll read it, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll look at the text. This is the word of the Lord. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth being carried, was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths of it. We ask this morning that you would open our eyes to see Christ and his work more clearly. That we would not just see mere events that happened 2,000 years ago, but that we would see Christ clearly, clearly through these scriptures. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so, like I said, not compared to what we've been going through in terms of Pentecost and all these Old Testament references, um, this is a pretty straightforward text, or at least seemingly it is. So, Peter and John, what do they do? We'll look at three things. We'll look at the setting, we'll look at the event, the miracle that happens, and then we'll look at some of the effects, and then we'll talk about that. So, the setting, what's the setting? So, it says, Peter and John are going up to the temple. So, if you were here last week, we talked about how... Christ ascending and um, to the right hand of the Father has implications that we're not looking for a physical temple anymore, that Christ and his people are uh, where God's presence dwells. So you might ask, be asking, why are Peter and John going to the temple? Um, they're not going there to sacrifice animals or anything. Really, as we see in the rest of the book of Acts, they're going to proclaim the gospel. They're using that as a platform to talk about the risen Christ and proclaim the gospel. And so they're going there. And we see them come up against this man, this the lame beggar, as your wedding might say. So who was this man? He was waiting outside the temple, outside of this gate, actually. They called it the beautiful gate. And so this was a highly ordinate gate. There was Corinthian bronze and all these things. It was a very beautiful gate. But this man was crippled, and so he would have to wait outside. He couldn't work. He didn't have a job. So he had to wait outside. He couldn't even go into the temple because of his, um, because of his crippled, you know, cripples were not allowed to go into the temple, basically. And so he would ask for money or alms, as it says, and that's how he made his living. That's how he had anything, really. 
So he was a beggar. But he wasn't only a beggar, he was also lame or crippled. And so if you look at the text there in um, verse 2, it says that he was lame from birth. So this man had never walked in his life. He was born this way, and we, we see later on in chapter 3 that he was 40 years old. So for 40 years, this man has been coming to this gate and sitting there and asking people for money day in and day out, day in and day out. So this wasn't an injury. This wasn't an accident. This was, he was born in this condition. This didn't happen to him. He was born this way. So he doesn't know anything else. And so he's asking for money. So this is the setting. So pretty straightforward there. And then we come to the event. What happens? It says in verse 4 that Peter directed his gaze at him. And he said, look at us. So many of you have probably indicated or seen people asking for money. You know, it can, there's a lot of shame that can be associated with that. People don't like to look you in the eyes sometimes. And so even just them look, telling him to look at them is and giving him dignity in a sense, that he has value and worth, and that this man probably felt a lot of shame. He'd been doing this for 40 years. He's used to just doing this day in and day out. And his expectations were low, as we see, that he's just expecting alms, nothing more. He's expecting money, and that's all. So what, do we, what does Peter say to him? He says a couple things. He says, I don't have any money. <laughs> so I'm sure for a split second, this man is sort of sad. Um, he's looking for money. That's how he makes his living. And in his condition, that's all he can really expect. So Peter says, I have no silver or gold. But then what does he say? What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And it says immediately his legs and his ankles are made strong and that he goes leaping. <laughs> So this is not a gradual crawl. This is He goes straight from lame for 40 years to leaping. So let's look at this crippled man a little bit closer. Like I said, he was born this way, in this condition. He knew nothing else. This was the condition that he was born in, in this lame position, crippled. And that he would have to sit outside this gate every day and watch people go into the gate, go into the temple. And he himself could not go and that he'd been there for 40 years, and so these people would have known him. He wasn't just a prop. If you've ever seen a ma uh, magician, sometimes to get, a, to get a trick to play over well, they'll plant somebody in the audience, and so they have something hidden in their pocket. This was not a plant from Peter and John. This man would have been known by all these people for 40 years, and so this healing was not fake. It was not a, a fake healing. This was legitimate. And it's interesting that Peter doesn't really say a lot to him, and he mentions Jesus to him. And so you might think, Peter, you might want to explain a little bit more about who Jesus is to this man. But if we look at the rest of Scripture in John 10, it's actually the passage we read in our assurance of pardon this morning. That great passage comes after Jesus heals a man born blind outside the temple. And so we, it's safe to assume that this, this crippled man was probably outside the temple as well, and probably even maybe even heard this this sermon of Jesus about being the good shepherd and the door, the gate, if you will. So it's kind of interesting to think about. This man maybe would have even seen Jesus before, may have heard him, but Peter in coming and telling him, raise up in the name of Jesus, um, would not have been a mystery to him. He would have known who, who Christ was. And then looking at this miracle a little bit closer, I just wanted to point out a couple things about it. 
three things. First, it was instant, like we talked about. This wasn't a seven minute long chant. <laughs> he said, rise up and walk. It was instant. It was also a, an entire healing, right? It wasn't just that he was, like I said, crawled out of there and it took some time. It was an entire healing of his legs and his ankles. Um, I mean, think about it. There's some people, even grown adults, that whether through memory loss or an injury, have to relearn to walk. It can take months. So to go from having never used your leg muscles before to walking and jumping is, is a miracle. It is a bona fide miracle. So it's instant, it's entire, and it's even investigated in the next chapter. In, in chapter 4, verse 14, we see that even the enemies of the apostles and this man investigate the miracle. And they can't even speak against it. They see, they know this man, they see that he's healed, they cannot, <laughs> there's nothing they can do. So it's instant, it's entire, and it's investigated by the enemies. And so just noting that there's a lot of people today that profess healings and leg growings and um, all these things, but this is wholly different than modern faith healing. This is a bona fide, complete, instant healing. Um, and I only say that because I heard a pastor say to me one time about this idea he called power evangelism. And he said, preaching the gospel isn't enough. These young people, they don't really want to hear the gospel. They don't want to hear the good news. So we are going to do something called power evangelism, where we go out, we perform miracles, and we attempt to save people, right? And so that's a good question to ask. Do miracles save people? Do wit does witnessing miracles save people? And so I think it's a good question to ask, but we look at Luke, we don't have time to go there now, but there's, Jesus tells this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is this poor man, a beggar, similar to this crippled man, actually. Lazarus, in this parable, is the rich man, and he goes down to the place of the dead, and he's in mourning and anguish. And Lazarus is at Abraham's side, and the rich man is begging Lazarus. He says, send someone to my brother, send someone from the dead and they will repent so that they do not have to bear this. And what does Jesus say? He says, even if someone should come from the dead, they will not believe. If they do not believe the law and the prophets, they will not believe if someone comes to them from the dead. So this sort of refutes this idea that miracles are what save people. It's, it's really the word of God spoken through the gospel that, that saves people. So just a note about that. So... What is the point of these miracles, right? We just read about a miracle. It's in the Bible. The rest of Acts is filled with these miracles. What is the point of these, we need to ask? A couple things. First, it shows the kindness of Christ. That he's not leaving this man in his um, condition that he heals him. This is a great grace and kindness to him. Um, secondly, as we'll see in the rest of the chapter, it gives a hearing to the gospel. That people see this miracle and they are gathered around and at the, by the end of the chapter, 5,000 people are welcomed into the church from this one act. So it gives an audience. But also, and I think more importantly, it authenticates the, the apostles and their message. And as we read, even um, in John 10, he says, The works that I do bear witness about me. So these, these miracles are bearing witness about these apostles, that they are God's agents of authoritative... Um, speech, that they speak God's word, that they are his agents, and they are the ones that wrote the scriptures, or people that were influenced by them. So 
Um, there's places we can go in Hebrews 2 to talk about this, but um, essentially that these works authenticate the message of the apostles. And if you think about someone like Moses, what happens? He says, I don't want to go to the people. They won't believe me. And God gives him a staff and it turns into a snake. And so he uses these miracles, these signs, to authenticate God and his spokespeople. And then in another sense, this miraculous event, this man crippled, made well, is an inbreaking of the new heavens and the new earth, if you will. That kind of might sound weird language, but um, what, what's true about the new heavens and the new earth, right? There's no sin, there's no sickness, all are made well. So this is an inbreaking of that. You might say, Kendall, what are you talking about? I don't know what you mean. There's this really interesting passage in Matthew 27. Some of you probably heard it and thought, what the heck does this mean? After Christ dies, the temple curtain is torn in two, there's an earthquake, and people are raised from the dead. <laughs> and I think it's only in Matthew's Gospel, and so you're like, what is happening? <laughs> it was a picture of the, end, of the end days, that upon Christ's return, that the dead will be raised, and that all will be made well. And so it was just a picture. It's not that people are going to be raised from here, from Christ's death onward. It was, it was showing that this that there was a new creation happening, that something new was happening. And so we can say the similar thing here, that this is sort of an inbreaking of the new heavens and the new earth. And it's even a fulfillment of prophecy. If you wanted to look at um, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 35, 6 says this. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So we see this inbreaking. This the man that was lame is now leaping. The man that could not enter the temple enters the temple, and we see that in the last couple of verses. So we've looked at the setting, we've looked at the event, and we'll look at the effects of this event. So not just in the verses that we read, but in the next couple chapters, you could read about this man enters the temple, people are gathered around, and like I said, this is used as an opportunity to preach Christ. We'll look at that next week, but Peter uses this as an opportunity to preach about Christ, what he came to do, repentance and faith. And like I said, long term, 5,000 people are welcomed into the church through this. And then even though they go through persecutions, we'll see Peter and John locked up. Um, they even tell them not to preach about Christ. We'll see that even through these persecutions that the gospel goes out. And through this one event, this one man made well, that um, many come to faith. And that even through this one act, Christ is building his church. So, okay, so... That was a lot. So what, Kendall? Let's take a step back and let's try to contemplate or think about these verses. What, what are some implications of this? Three things. The first one, that Christ is building his church. That even in this act, this one simple act, not simple, obviously, miraculous, but this one act, Christ brings 5,000 people into his church. And so even through trials and tribulations, we see Christ build his church. We see the word go forth. I went to um, a college called Judson University. It was named after an American missionary, one of the first American missionaries named Adoniram Judson. I don't know if that name rings a bell with anyone. He 
um, was one of the first missionaries to leave America and went to a place called Burma. There was no English-speaking people there. He spent 38 years there. He lost two wives. He translated the entire Bible, I think, or maybe just the New Testament, into Burmese. And by the end of his life, there were 17 people in his church. 38 years. He lost two wives, all this sickness and disease, and he had 17 people. But today, if you look at Burma, I think it goes by a different name now, there's over 4 million Christians in Burma, in modern-day Burma. And it's just amazing to think about this one man's trials and perseverance that he went through that in the moment seemed small, had these vast implications. So Christ is building his church, and that even through whether it's crippled diseases or COVID-19, it doesn't matter. Christ is going to build his church through trial and tribulation when we can take comfort and join. And then secondly, this man gives us a picture of the human condition, really. What was this man? He was born crippled, unable to walk. It wasn't this, just that he chose not to walk. He could not walk. He was born in this condition. And this shows us us in our sin. And we talk about total depravity a lot. I'm not sure if you guys have heard that phrase, total depravity. But we look outside in the news and we see the world is depraved. It's sinful. You look at the news for five seconds, we see destructions everywhere. Even in our own city, I was looking um, in the news. I mean, horrible things. I don't even say in front of children. Men are accused of these things. They're arrested. It's sick. And even more than that, our own hearts are sinful. We tend to not follow God. We look at those people and we say they're so bad, but our own hearts are corrupt. And so this total depravity is not only a sinfulness in us, but it's also a total inability to come to God. So just like this crippled man, he could not walk. He couldn't walk. He didn't just choose not to walk for a time. He couldn't walk. And this is us in our condition. That, um, what does Paul say in Romans 3? That no one seeks after God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so, in a sense, you could say, I like how Martin Lloyd-Jones said it, he said we are spiritually crippled. That it's not just that we are slightly unable to walk, that we, that we cannot walk, we cannot seek after God. So this might leave us feeling helpless, but um, like we've read this morning, that we need a miracle <laughs> like this man. We need something outside of ourselves. We need an act of the Spirit of God. We need the Good Shepherd. So this is what Christ has done. This is what he came to do in the incarnation, living the perfect life that you and I could not live, fulfilling the full demands of the law, and then on the cross taking the punishment that we deserved. We call this his active obedience and his passive obedience. His active obedience, doing what we could not do. His passive obedience, suffering what we deserved. And that by ascending to heaven and pouring out his spirit, by faith, this redemption that Christ accomplished is applied to our accounts. <laughs> it's not that we are made perfect in an instant, physically, you know, like everything I do now. It's that Christ's active obedience is imputed to us. It's a legal term. It's a forensic justification, if you will. And so there is no other way, there's no other gate that we can enter into. It is through the gate of Christ. And like we read part of um, John 10 this morning, I just, I just wanted to read a little bit more of John 10 and just hear the words of Christ, the great shepherd. 
He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So Christ, on his perfect righteousness, has entered this door, has entered the gate. We talked about ascending the hill in Psalm 24. All these things are kind of coming together. And we jump down. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the gate of the sheep. All who come before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the, I am the door or the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I, I know my own, and my own know me. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, speaking about the Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. These are good words <laughs> from the Lord. And so, what was this man? He was the crippled man outside of the gate, unable to enter through the gate. Christ comes, and in his mercy, in our sinful condition, in our crippling, he is the gate that we can enter in through. He is the good shepherd, that by his righteousness, by his active and passive obedience, he makes us right with God, that he is the good shepherd that leads us to green pastures, that he is the beautiful gate that we enter in through. And we even read that in, um, in our call to worship. I, think, I know some of you might think I just throw this together, but I really try to think about all these verses. And if you look at Psalm 118, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And it's interesting because when I say, Kindle, you know, you're getting a little bit too allegorical with this gate analogy, but Peter actually goes on to quote in his sermon and to the to the Pharisees this passage in Psalm 118. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So Christ is our great shepherd, and as we're going to sing in Psalm 23 again, that he leads us to green pastures. These aren't a house on the hill or riches and wealth in this life, but this is the green pastures of his word, that as a good shepherd, he leads us to himself, where he feeds us and nourishes us. And I was just reminded, last thing, of Revelation 22, verse 14. It says, blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. This gate is Christ, may we receive and rest on him today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are the gate, and that all who seek to enter must enter through you, your perfect righteousness being credited to their account, and the sin and punishment that we deserve being um, taken from us and imputed to you, and that we can have assurance to approach your throne of grace this morning, that even though that we sin and we fall short of your glory and we struggle, and there's great suffering in this life, within and without, we can take great comfort knowing that you are our shepherd and that we can rest in that this morning. We ask that you would lead us to green pastures and that we would look forward to your house where we would dwell forevermore. In your name we pray. Amen. If you stand with me, we'll sing Psalm 23. Um, we'll be singing this to the tune of Amazing Grace.
is how sweet the sound is.